And I wish, rather than just showing you a four-minute video of India, that we could all get on a plane and go there for ten days together because I know, like it did with the people who went on the trip, I know that it would radically change your life. And, and seeing the video, probably those who have been to India were in tears during the video. Some of you were just, you know, looking at it. Your heart isn't impacted till you're really there. But I want to share with you today, as, as we continue our series, Looking Towards Easter... And we started a series last week with Pastor Ryan that we simply just titled One Month to Live. And we are in the final month of Jesus' life in our Bible studies this month as we walk towards Easter. And remember, Jesus, the Bible says, was born for the first 30 years of his life. We know very, very little about him. At the age of 30, he was baptized by his older cousin. His name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. And then he started his three-year ministry. And we are finding ourselves, as we study Scripture, in the last... 30 days of that three years of ministry, finding out the things that are most crucial to Jesus as he turns to head towards Jerusalem, knowing that when he gets there, they're going to kill him. Next week, we'll look at the Palm Sunday narrative in the text. What did Jesus do with one week left to live? But today we find ourselves in John chapter 11, and I think this chapter is only appropriate because of what we learn in it and because of the experience I had in India that... uh, that helps me learn how to process things spiritually. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle and they're going to pass out Bibles. Today's a good day to have a Bible. If you don't have one, just wave at our ushers. They'll give it to you. If you don't have a Bible, keep this. It's yours. Put your name in the front. If you just forgot your Bible today, today we're going to read through 44 verses. So it, uh, today's a good day to have one on your lap or pick up your phone if you read on your phone or on your tablet. Because today we're going to study the story of Lazarus. As we look at Jesus with just weeks to live now, what he does for a friend, but what we learn from that passage. You know, I've had a lot of people since I have been home ask me to uh, describe my time in India to them. Or they ask me, Christian, how how was India? How did it go? Um, What did you learn there? And I tell people, I came away from India, and I had the opportunity the night before we left to tell our group this. I had the opportunity the night We did leave to tell not only our group, but the people we were with from uh, Indiana and one from Chicago and one from North Carolina. Um, I I came away from our trip to India with extreme tension in my heart over what was going on because my spiritual mind and my spiritual eyes uh, were not matching. Um, Because here's what happened in our trip. The first two days that we went there, uh, where you saw a lot of the video shot behind us, we uh, we were at an orphanage in southern India, where about a hundred girls had been rescued from one situation or another. It was a Christian-run orphanage. And I'll be honest, even though though these girls, many of them did not have parents, uh, a pack of these girls, a a group of about a dozen, they actually found in the woods in northern India. Their mom and dads had been Christians, and they had been killed by a radical Muslim sect in northern India. And literally, the girls had run away, and they had found them in the woods together and been able to get them safely down to where we were. But I looked and the girls were so happy and they had food and they had water and they had clothes and they had education. Um, and, and they were just so filled with joy that the first two days of India, I felt extreme hope that in the worst of circumstances, these little girls had been rescued and they were going to be okay. They were going to be okay physically. They were going to be okay educationally. They were going to be uh, okay um, with spiritually with all their needs met. And some of these little girls are church sponsors. Some of the little girls you see 
when we give in the offering and, and you hear me say that the first 12% of what we take in, we give away, part of that 12% goes to support some of those little girls you saw, everything they eat, everything they wear, what they sleep on, what they study with. Our church and churches across the country support them. So the first two days, I thought, man, th- this is awesome. But then the last two days, we got in a plane and we flew down to southern India and we spent time going from village to village to village in extreme outlying spots in India. And I was very, very, very burdened. Um, we went to villages that, uh, where hardly anyone was Christians. Um, we went to villages where kids were still living with their parents, but their parents had nothing. Uh, we would leave our hotel at 8 a.m. in the morning and wouldn't get back till about 8 p.m. at night. And during those 12 hours, we didn't have a bathroom. And during those 12 hours, we didn't have any food, only a bottle of water and a protein bar that you could fit in your backpack. We were outside the whole time. It was high 90s, high humidity, mosquitoes everywhere. They were very long, tiresome days. And on the bus ride from our hotel into these villages, we would pass all these Hindu temples and we would pass shrines that very much like you would read about in the Old Testament, we would see these just basically shrines to gods that were out in the middle of fields or beside the road and we would drive by them at 8 a.m. in the morning and there would be burning sacrifices there to them in the morning and we'd drive home at 6 or 7 at night and there would be burning sacrifices to them and, and I saw this culture and these people who were lost spiritually and they had nothing physically and if it didn't rain they weren't going to have anything to eat and I, and I looked and I saw and, and I had an extreme tension in my heart and that tension was this. I went there to tell these people that God loved them and that God knew about them and that God would take care of them. But it didn't appear that that was happening. And I was a little frustrated with God. The first two days I felt like God had done what I expected God to do in India. But the last two days I looked, and, and I'll be honest with you, I laid awake in my hotel room swatting the mosquitoes, and I, and I kind of had this thought, and I had this conversation with Danielle, and I had this conversation with those that we were, were, who, who we were with, and the conversation kind of went like this, like, like, where is God in the midst of this? What is, what is the plan to bring God here? And, you know, like an arrogant American preacher would do, I laid awake trying to figure out how I could solve the problem and how I could fix what was the issue. And, and I kind of wrestled with God because my mind told me that God loved them, that God knew about them, that God cared about them, but my eyes were showing me something different because they weren't being reached fast enough and they weren't being provided for well. And we met one mother who stood up and told us that her third daughter, once they have one daughter in India, the likelihood that they will allow their second daughter to live is, is very slim. Usually they will begin to kill off successive daughters because they think they're bad luck, because they have no value, because they can't afford to one day give them a dowry. And we, we met a mother who talked freely and openly about how when they had her third daughter, that her, her husband's parents came in from out of town and at 20 days old fed the baby poison so that it would die and told her that she was cursing the family because she kept having girls and they wouldn't speak to her. Her husband actually left until uh, she on one of his visits got pregnant and had a boy. And you just look at this and think, what in the world is happening and where is God? And, and I was a little frustrated spiritually that God wasn't doing more. And I found myself coming home from a mission trip with tension, excited about what God was doing, but, but wondering maybe why he wasn't doing more a little faster, the way that I would do it on, on my timetable. 
And as we look in John chapter 11, we, we find a similar scenario, not little girls, but we find a similar tension. We see people who have heard that Jesus loves them, who believe that Jesus loves them, um, who have experienced maybe a little bit in their past of Jesus' love for them. But we see them in a situation that makes it look like maybe Jesus doesn't care as much as they thought he did. And we see a little bit of tension spiritually in John chapter 11 because this Jesus that we all worship did not really come through the way that Jesus would, if that makes sense. Like Jesus would have done something different, yet here he is and he didn't do anything. It's, it's a great narrative. It happened in the last month of Jesus' life. I want to read it to you today, John chapter 11. It's 44 verses, so hang with me while we read it, but I've got to read you the whole narrative. And then, and then I want to teach you today the spiritual principles that I, want, that I believe Jesus wants us to learn. And, and some of you, you're going to hear things for the very first time that you've ever heard in church as we learn the reality of the Christian life and sometimes how difficult and confusing it is. Here's what John 11 says, starting in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. By the way, have your pens because I'm going to want you to underline some important parts in this. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Verse 2 is really important. You should circle that one. John, who's writing this narrative, wants us to know how much Mary loved Jesus and in the past how close they were. This is important for later on in this story. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Underline verse 3. You need to understand that Mary and Martha believed that Jesus loved their brother. We don't have to wonder, did, you know, did Jesus care? Mary, according to Mary and Martha, Lord, the one you love is sick. They knew Jesus cared about their brother. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified. Now, verse 5, John now adds his thoughts. I want you to underline verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is important for later in the story for you to understand. Mary and Martha have now stated, we know you love Lazarus. John, who's writing the passage, has now stated, actually, Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So we don't have to wonder whether or not Jesus cared about these people. He did. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Underline verse 8. Verse 8 tells us how much he cares about Lazarus. He knew that going to see Lazarus could get him killed, yet he was going to go anyway. Why? Because he cared about Lazarus. So Mary and Martha thought Jesus cared about Lazarus. John thought Jesus cared about Lazarus. Jesus' actions tell us that Jesus cared about Lazarus. Yet the story's going to unfold in an interesting way. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daytime will not stumble for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there and wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Now, if you have a highlighter or a pen or whatever, you need to underline this part of verse 15. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. The whole focus and key to John chapter 11 is Jesus is trying to teach us how to believe more in him, how to believe more on him, how to know him better. 
the whole focus of John chapter 11, according to Jesus, Jesus, I'm glad this is happening because this is going to help you believe in me. So let's keep going. What is it going to help us believe? Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's go so that we can die with him. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus hadn't yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and and troubled. Where have they laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. By the way, that's the shortest verse in the English Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. If you've ever wanted to memorize a verse in your life, that might be a good one. Jesus wept. There you got it. And let's move on. Verse 36. Then Jesus said, see how he, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. You need to underline that. Again, a key point in this text. Jesus said, this is happening so people will believe that you sent me. So last month of Jesus' life, maybe the last three weeks of Jesus' life, and what's important to Jesus that you believe that he came from God for you, according to this text. I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, man, there is so much to learn in John chapter 11 that we could probably spend a year there. But I think as we look at Jesus' ministry winding down, as we look at Jesus now, as Pastor Ryan said last week, only doing the most important things with the most important people, only teaching the most important lessons, I believe there are two things that radically stand out in John chapter 11 that not only strengthen our spiritual life, but challenge our spiritual life. At least they challenge mine. And I want to show these things to you. The first is this. As we look at the spiritual themes in Lazarus' story, the two that jump off the page at me, I believe we see first Jesus' personal connection to people. And man, if you've never heard anything in a church before ever, you need to understand this. Jesus loves you. Not just the world, you. 
He knows your name. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows your today. He knows what you like and what you don't like. He knows your favorite television show on TV. Mine now is Duck Dynasty. I found that over spring break, and it has become like my all-time favorite show in life. It is awesome. You need to watch it. If you have not, it will be good for you spiritually, I promise. Um, It's great. Uh, But Jesus knows you, and Jesus loves you. And Jesus desires to be personally connected to you. What we see in Scripture, we did not see in India. We saw a bunch of gods with weird-looking Hindu faces, more than 6,000 different Hindu gods. None of them were ever people that came down to have relationships with people. Jesus was a person that loved people, and he was connected to people. And in the story of Lazarus, we see Jesus' personal connection to people. But here's here's what's so weird. Where we see most deeply his personal connection to people we also have to most deeply question whether or not he cared. You say, what do you mean by that? Look at verses 32 through 37. Kind of the pinnacle of the story. And remember in verse 32, Mary, we've been introduced to her early in John chapter 11. John said, remember, she came and anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped him with her hair. Like Mary and Jesus, they were really, really close. So we get into John 11. Jesus comes into town. They say, hey, Jesus is here. Mary won't even leave the house. This is how upset Mary is with Jesus. And Mary gets to Jesus, and look what we're talking about, how how much Jesus loves people. And look at how this narrative unfolds. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. Now when she saw Jesus weeping, or when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was moved in spirit and trouble. Now, stop right there. You need to understand this. The Bible paints a picture of Jesus as someone who, when he sees you hurting, when he sees people around you hurting, he hurts too. That's the picture being painted in John eleven thirty three. 33. When Jesus sees you hurting, and when he sees people around you hurting, it hurts him. That's, according to Scripture, the personal connection that Jesus has with us. The nights you've spent crying by yourself, wondering if anyone cares, Jesus cries those nights too, according to the picture drawn for us in John eleven thirty three, 33. The nights your family has suffered loss and you've sat together at a funeral or a wake or a visitation or by a bedside or you've suffered a terrible tragedy or job loss together or you've moved out of a home together as a family that's been foreclosed on. Those nights that you and your family hurt according to John eleven thirty three, 33 were presented with a Jesus who hurts deeply with you. He asked in verse 34, where have you laid him? So they said, come and see. And then in verse 35, he wept. Now, this is not a good English term for what is happening here. The original New Testament was written in Greek, not English. And I have learned, both by studying the Bible and by being in foreign countries, most countries and languages use a lot more words than we do. They're much more descriptive. When I was in India and I was preaching to little girls and you saw me preaching to a group of women at one point, praying over kids in villages, it really weirded me out because I would say like a sentence in English and then the translator would talk for like two minutes. And like, I was like, you know, I only said five words. And I asked another Indian person as well, I was like, is he really saying what I say? Because I speak for 30 seconds and then they speak for five minutes. Or is he just, make, is he just like winging this and doing his own thing? And he's like, no, it takes us more words to say what you're trying to say. This term Jesus wept is, that's not what was written in the Greek. The term literally is wailed. That's the, the English thought that we would have. He's crying out loud here. It's wept as, you know, we think of wept as maybe a tear dripping down your cheek. 
The Bible says Jesus was so deeply moved, he was crying out loud where you could hear him. That's how much Jesus loved Lazarus, according to this section. Then the Jews looked at him and said, man, look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus. Man, you could look at half this story and say, Mary and Martha, man, they knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. And John, who wrote the story, he'd spent three years with Jesus. He knew Jesus loved Lazarus. Lazarus, and he risked his own life. He must have, even the people who were around are like, man, look at how much he loved Lazarus. We see this deep connection that Jesus had to people, and it's clearly shown in verses 33 through 36. You can't read verses 33 through 36 and say he didn't care. But it's interesting because it's bracketed by the personal connection to Lazarus correctly being questioned. At the same time, we see a picture of Jesus who cares so much and it appears cares so little. We're almost presented with someone who's kind of an enigma. Look at verse 32. Well, everyone else is saying, man, look how much Jesus loved Lazarus. Look at what Mary says. Remembering she didn't even come when Jesus first got to the house. They're like, hey, Jesus is here. And she's like, I ain't going. And then when Martha finally comes back and says, hey, Jesus wants to see you. Look what she marched up to Jesus and said. This is someone who loves Jesus deeply. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet and said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is not a question. That's an accusation. She basically pointed her finger in Jesus' face and said, you may have all these people fooled. And the world may think you love him and the world may think you care. But if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. What's your explanation? Now that had to be a hard conversation to have. But you know what, I'm glad, I bet she was glad she got it off her chest. You know, I think if more Christians were honest with themselves, with themselves, we have times in our life where we feel like this. We have times in our life where we feel like Jesus hurts with us and cries with us and Jesus is there with us. But we have times in our life where if we were honest, we would say, you know what, According to the Bible that I read and the God that I know about, if God is all loving and He is all knowing and He is all powerful, why isn't He doing something for my situation? I think if we were honest, we would say that that tension lies within us. Look at what not just Mary said, but in verse 37, there's some people on the side of the crowd saying, wow, look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And these guys pipe in, they're kind of more realists, and they say, well, wait a minute. Couldn't the guy who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? It's like, wait a minute, he's got you all fooled. He says he loves Lazarus. Why didn't he help him? Jesus says he loves you. Why isn't he doing anything for you? You hear this pastor on stage say, Jesus loves you and he knows you. And your thought is, bull. Because where is he right now, pastor? That's the thought of John chapter 11. It presents a Jesus so clearly connected with people that he weeps with them, yet so from the outside, from the eyeball test, so disconnected that he let a guy die. What's happening here? How do we we deal with this? You know, as, as I have been wrestling with India and trying to answer the question, God, how can a country with 1.2 billion people not have more of the gospel given to it. As I have been wrestling through my faith, what I'm finding is I am I'm really drawing closer to God and trying to seek answers to these questions. And here's what I've learned spiritually throughout the 35 years that I've lived on this earth. I've learned if you're not wrestling with God through some part of your faith, then you're probably not growing spiritually. 
You know, it's interesting that, that we would celebrate um, hardship when we talk about, like, physical fitness. You know, I, 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 I like to think of myself as an athlete, but I'm probably a former athlete. But I remember the feeling of after a, a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game, sitting in front of a locker, spent, and your clothes are just soaked in sweat, and you've got bumps and bruises, and you're sore, and you know you can barely bend over to take your shoes off. And I remember, as weird as it sounds, how good that felt. Knowing that you had just done battle and, and that you had, you had come through it. You'd taken a step forward. Now when I work out, if I go work out and I don't get sore, I don't feel like I've had a workout. I don't feel like I've done anything good. But it seems like when Jesus makes us sweat a little bit spiritually, we don't like that. And when we get bruised spiritually, we don't like that. And when we're sore spiritually, we don't like that. And it's like the way that we're intended to grow by being broken down to get stronger. We want to do that in every area, but spiritually. And spiritually, we want things to be all roses and don't hurt me and don't make me sweat and don't bruise me and don't give me any bumps. I, you know, I want this to be a nice, smooth road. But according to Scripture, that's not the way Christianity works. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul, in trying to explain how Christianity worked, trying to explain how spiritual growth works, trying to explain how spiritual development worked as you try to figure out how to live your life as a Christian, said this in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Okay, how do I get strong spiritually? Paul says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Paul says this, before I go on. Paul says, if you want to be strong, here's what you need to do. You need to go to war. It's like, time out. Okay, what if I don't want to be strong? Can I still go to heaven? That's like the question that the American Christian asks, right? It's like, okay, time out. Um, like, if I don't want to do the armor and flaming arrows and like all that, can I, like, can I just go to heaven and be the manager? Do I, I, do I have to like, get on the field and play? And Paul's like, yeah, if you want to grow, you got to play. you got to get on the field. Be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. How? Put on the armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, go to war. For our struggle... The, the word here, struggle, we have a great picture of this. It is Greco-Roman-style Olympic wrestling. It's hand-to-hand combat. Paul says if you want to grow, you're going to like have to grab the devil by the neck at the same time he grabs you by the neck, and you're going to have to figure out how to pin him. And he's like, what? That is, that's crazy. That's what Paul says. For our wrestling, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of the stark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Man, you want to grow? Get ready for battle. Get ready for tension. Get ready for unanswered questions. Get ready for wrestling around with God and having weeks at a time where you're trying to figure out what things mean spiritually. Get ready for tension spiritually if you want to understand how to personally connect to Jesus. It's interesting, in John chapter 17, We see Jesus pray for the people in this room. You say, what do you mean he prays for the people in this room? I mean, he says this. In John chapter 17, we call it the high priestly prayer. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying over a rock and he says, God, help my disciples, like the 11 that are left, because Judas is getting ready to kill himself, but like help them stay strong. But then he says this, "And, and anyone else who ever becomes a Christian, that's us. Jesus says, here's what I want for them. So here's what Je- if, if you ever wondered if Jesus prayed for you, he did. And here's what Jesus prayed for you, according to John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. That's his 11. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's those of us in this room who are believers in Jesus. That all of them may be one, Father, just are as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so the world can believe that you've sent me. Jesus didn't say my prayers for people is that their Christianity is easy. My prayer for people is that they don't have any bumps and bruises. My prayer for people is that they don't ever lose a spiritual battle. My prayer for people is that they'll really get 
to know us. And sometimes it takes a great amount of struggle and sacrifice and hardship for that to happen. Man, the coolest part of India for me, you know, if you say, what's the most memorable part of the trip for you, Christian? It was when we sat around on Thursday night with our group of 11. And I just said, man, tell me why you came and what you got out of this trip. And everyone began to share. And it was crazy because everyone shared something radically different. But the answer was all the same. Like, I came on this trip for this reason, but here's what Jesus has done for me. And then the next night, we had our whole group of 17 together, us and the crew from the other churches. And the same thing happened. Everyone talked about, you know, I came to India to do this, but here's what happened. Man, Jesus pulled me closer. I tried to figure out how to have all those people come up on stage and tell you what happened. But that evening took like two and a half hours. So I thought, well, we can't do that in a church window. And I thought, maybe I should record everyone. I thought that won't be good. And I didn't know what to do. I thought, I'll just, I'll just explain it like I've explained it. And then I got an email from the person on the trip that I would have least expected to say, I want to share it. And last week I was away on spring break and I got an email from Melanie McCord. You can come on out, Melanie, who's one of the people who went on the trip. And she said, man, I, I just feel like it's been laid on my heart that I should share um, just what God's doing in me through the trip, if you want me to. And I was like, heck yeah, I want you to. So as, as you think on this thought that everything you're going through in life right now, even the tension, Jesus is trying to figure out a way to take that so you'll know him more. I want you to meet Melanie. Everyone say hi, Melanie. She's a little nervous, but see, everyone knows you now and you know them, so it's cool. Um, but I just want her to share, take a few minutes to share her story um, of what she did and how it impacted her so you can understand what I'm talking about here in John 11. All right, so I'm here to share how the India experience um, was a missing piece of my life. Um, a lot of times when people go on a mission trip, they'll come back and they'll say it was life-changing. And we were challenged on this trip to think about what is life-changing and how are you going to be able to explain that to when you come back. So through a lot of reflecting and a lot of prayer, this is what, how I best can explain it. I see it as three different stories. There's the story, their story, and then there's my story. And the story is how I look to it as um, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that verse leads into their story. And when I'm talking about their story, I'm talking about the orphan girls of India. See, over there, those girls have little value. They are um, killed, not just as a child, but because they're a girl. And going over there, I had emotions before I went. I knew it was going to be hard because of knowing that innocent children are being murdered. And so I knew it was going to be hard on me. And when I get there, I, it was amazing. I get there and I notice that these orphan girls were so full of hope and joy. And I was confused by that. That was, I was very confused. And I'm sitting there just pondering and wondering. And it started to come to me like, they understand, they rely and they depend on God's love to live for their life. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to India to make a difference for these girls. But they're the ones that changed my life. And I, their story now leads into what I say is my story. 
and I see it kind of as a puzzle. Being a teacher, I like to explain things with a visual. I see it as a puzzle. And when you put a puzzle together, you start with the border of the puzzle. And the border of the puzzle is being a daughter, being a sister, being a wife, being a mother, um, be, being a teacher. Those are the pieces that were put together. And those pieces make me, me. But then you have to fill that puzzle. You've got to put that puzzle together. And when you begin to start putting that puzzle together, you are making those choices. You have the pieces over here that are God's plan pieces. And then you've got these pieces over here that would be like our selfish desires. Well, I struggled with, as I'm over there, noticing that my pieces were f being filled with my selfish desires. And I'm going to take you a little bit flashback to kind of understand. I remember my parents are here, my sister. They probably don't even know this because I come from a, four girls and I'm very, I keep everything to myself. And the reason why I'm speaking is I feel like God told me, you need to take down the wall, you need to quit, avoid me, and you need to speak the story so others can be witness to. So I remember as a small child going down stairs early in the morning, I was an early riser, <laughs> and turning on the TV and flipping through and watching Feed the Children. And oh, I wanted to do that so bad. And I just remember that was my dream when my dream came true. And the reason why I got so much from that is God had planted this desire in me to serve others before my spouse, and especially for children. I have a passion for children. That is why I'm a teacher. And through all this, I'm thinking, I was getting so frustrated before I went on this mission trip. Like, why are my pieces not fitting together? I'm like cramming them in there. You always try to stick that puzzle piece, and it's not fitting. Well, it wasn't fitting because I wasn't choosing from the pieces that God planted, I'm choosing my pieces that I thought needed to fill that puzzle. So at that point, I take a turn. I decide to change my path. And I decide to focus on that center piece. And to me, the center piece, the final piece of that puzzle is making God the priority. Your relationship with him is the priority. I didn't have that before. And I remember at that point, that's what I was going to do. So through prayer, Bible reading, through um, using this India experience to speak to others, to witness to them, to understand that um, not to fill my puzzle with happiness. Happiness is just, that feeling tends to fade away. But to fill it with joy, joy meaning God, what he put in me to do. And when I complete my puzzle and I stand right before God, he's going to be able to say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that is how my story begins. <laughs> Thanks, Melanie. You know, she said one really interesting thing there that I believe is true of all of us. She said God had planted this thing deep inside me that would allow me to really be completed spiritually, this thought of serving, hurting people on the mission field. But it wasn't easy, and it wasn't cheap, and it wasn't, you know, without everyone on the trip, you know, had friends and family that were like, you know, what are you, what are you doing, and what if you don't come back? And, I mean, asking very normal questions 
because they care. So there's this tremendous sacrifice of going, but it allows you, if you will wrestle with the tension in your life, the Bible says it'll draw you closer to God. Romans 8.28 says this. We know that all things, in, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. What does that mean? It means everything in your life is intended to be allowed to pull you closer to God so that you can know him, but not only so that you can know him, but so that you can live out his purpose for you. Like Melanie said, some of you that's been planted in you years, in, like in your infancy, in your childhood, there's something planted in you that'll complete you spiritually if you begin to do it. You say, well, how, how does that work? You want the spiritual answer? Here's the spiritual answer. You might want to write this down. Christian, how does it work that everything that happens ends up being able to pull me closer to God? How does that work? Here's the answer. I don't know. That's the hard part. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, I think Paul gave the greatest spiritual advice that's ever been given to questions like this. How is this going to work for my good? Paul said this, we live by faith, not sight. You know what that says? That says the answer to a lot of our spiritual questions is, I don't know. I don't know. But I believe that Jesus loves me and that he's going to use things in my life to allow me to know him more and to experience more of his love. Well, how, Christian? I don't know. We don't live by sight. If we did, I would tell you. I don't know for me how my experiences are going to lead me forward. I can only look at my past and tell, tell you how they have brought me to this point. But the future, I don't know the future any more than you do. And I don't know how bad things end up helping us in a good way spiritually, but I know we live by faith, not sight. So the first thing you need to understand as we read this difficult passage in John 11 is that Jesus desires to have a personal connection to you. And sometimes it's very real and very noticeable, and sometimes it feels like Jesus himself is a liar saying he cares about us. But if we will just hang on and live by faith, not sight, we will begin to walk and see how much Jesus clearly cares about us. The second thing, the second theme in this text that we need to hit quick and then be done is this theme of resurrection life. And man, what greater season than Easter season to focus not just on Jesus' resurrection life, but on our resurrection life. And this is one of my favorite interactions in all of Scripture. And, and most of you have not even seen it yet because we read over it so quick we don't see the reality of what's actually being said in a dialogue between Jesus and people. Look at John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. Because we get into this theological discussion of resurrection life that, again, we see one person doesn't understand. On his arrival, in verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. He was dead and buried. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. See that? Every now and then Christians get mad at Jesus, and we refuse to come out and play. Adam and Eve did the same thing in the garden. They refused to come out and play. Don't think that doesn't make you a Christian. That just means you've got some stuff you've you got to work on. Martha came out, and she said, Lord... If you've been here, my brother would not have died. Same common as Mary, but a little more spiritual approach to it. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she said, oh, I, I know that he'll rise again at the resurrection in the last day. So they're now having this kind of theological banter. Jesus said to her, well, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me is going to live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
Now, I want you to hear the question that he just asked her. Jesus said, people who believe in me will never die. They'll live. Do you believe this? Now, Martha's brother is dead. And he not only believed in Jesus, he was a friend of Jesus. So Jesus just asked her a very interesting question. Do you believe that people who believe in me won't ever die? Now, it looks as if she says, yeah, I believe that. But she doesn't say that. He said, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who's to come into the world. He said, do you believe? The people who believe in me will never die. And she basically said, I'm, I'm not quite sure what you're asking, but I believe you're Jesus. No, no. Do you believe the people who believe in me are never going to die? Jesus, I am extremely confused right now, but I know that you're Jesus. She actually, if you read the text real quickly, she skirted the question and she went and got her sister and was like, uh, Jesus needs to see you now. Maybe you can answer his crazy question that makes no sense at all because I'm not quite sure what's happening. And we see this happen often with Jesus. Right before Jesus is getting ready to do something miraculous, he'll ask a question that doesn't make sense. He did this to Philip when he fed the 5,000. Philip, where are we going to get food for all these people? And Philip's like, now, how would I know the answer to that question? And Jesus is like, never mind, I'll just create it. I mean, Jesus does crazy stuff like this. He's like, do you believe that Lazarus never died? And she's like, I don't understand, but I'm sure Mary will want to be here to see this, so just give me a second, and I'll be right back. I don't even, I don't know what's going on in my own life, Lord, but I believe that you're Jesus, and I trust that. So I'll, I'll keep sticking around. And as we see people who will say, I'm not sure how it all fits together. I'm not sure of the answers. I'm not sure how this is going to impact me for good, but I believe that you're Jesus. And, and, I, and I just want to follow you. Is that enough? We find out that that's enough. You see, Jesus showed up and did what only Jesus could do. According to verses 38 through 44, he walked up to the tomb, and, and, and we'll read it. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said, and I love this. Jesus tells Martha, your brother's going to live again. Do you believe that? She's like, that would be awesome. So he's like, all right, let's go to the tomb. Roll the stone away. She's like, wait, 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 wait. You can't do that. He's dead. It's like, wait a minute. So you're asking me to resurrect him, but you don't want me to move the stone because he's dead. See, sometimes, man, our faith is so much weaker than our hope. We're like, God, I want you to do this, but we, we don't even believe at the end of the day that he will. She said, Lord... By, by this time, there's a bad odor. He's, he's been dead four days. And Jesus was like, just stand back. Did I not tell you if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God? She's like, all right, do whatever you want. So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I did this for the benefit of the people standing here. And he did it for the benefit of the people sitting at Journey Church International today. And he did it for the benefit of people who will podcast this and watch it on the internet one day that you may believe that God sent Jesus. Listen, man, the whole narrative of Scripture is that you would believe that God sent Jesus and place your faith in him for your life, for your future, for your eternity. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a, in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the clothes and let him go. You know, one of my favorite parts about this text is how they refer to Lazarus and and, and John eleven forty four, it said the dead man came out. 
You know, I wish there were more Christians that saw themselves as dead men spiritually. We live in a world that's so overinflated with spiritual ego. We live in a world that's so pious. We live in a world that's so self-righteous. We live in a world where Christians like to compare who's more spiritual. Are you more spiritual than I am? Are you serving more than I am? Are you doing this or that? And we live in a world that doesn't want to see ourselves as dead spiritually. We want to see ourselves as very much alive spiritually. The only problem is three men way more spiritual than us, David, Solomon, and Paul in Psalm 143, 2, Ecclesiastes 7:20, and Romans 3, 9, all said this same thing about everyone who's ever lived. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. We're all a bunch of dead men. But at some point in time, Jesus said our name. And he said, you can come alive spiritually now. It's, it's, it's whether or not you have responded to that call that makes you alive spiritually. It's not what you do. It's not where you go. It's not how much you read your Bible. It's what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus said, move the stone. Today, Lazarus is going to live again. And today in your life, man, I don't know what's standing in the way of you. I don't know what excuses you have. I don't smell good. I've been in the tomb four days. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drunk. I've been one foot in the world and one foot in the church my whole life. I don't know what it'll mean for my future. Drop the excuses. Martha was like, Lord, Lord. And he was like, shut up. Today, Lazarus is going to live. Today, God wants you to shut up spiritually and just come out. He wants you to step into resurrection life. He wants you to take your dead spirit and soul and take one step towards him. You say, well, what about all the stuff? You know what I love? Lazarus came out. He was still wrapped up in all the garbage in his life. But he came out. You know, we want everyone to take off all the grave clothes before they ever come out of the grave. So that when we come out, we have on our white Benny Hinn suit. And, you know, it's like we look like a Christian day one. No, 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 no. Jesus says, you can come out and we'll help you get all the crap out of your life as you step out. But come on out into resurrection life. That's the Jesus we serve. And you know, as we look at personal connection to Jesus and resurrection life with Jesus, it has to come into our perspective like it did with Mary, like it did with Martha, like it did with Lazarus, like it did with me in India. God, how in the world are we going to reach this world? And you say, how did you get over the tension you felt from India? At some point in time, as I was talking to God about how unfair it was, the position that he had put the people in India in, and trying to wonder, you know, God, what great idea can I have to come up to help these people understand who Jesus is? God spoke to me and said, Christian, how did you find me? Like, you weren't born alive spiritually. You were born dead. I reached out to you. You did not reach out to me. How are the people in India going to hear about me? How in the world did you get here? How did the 11 people that came from Journey Church International get here? How did the six from Indianapolis get here? What about the crew that was here the week before you and the week that came after you? Christian, I love these people more than you do. You're just here as an ambassador for me, reminding them and showing up one day at a time, one week at a time, with a face that looks different and a Bible in your hand talking about Jesus so I can get their attention that Jesus loves them. And I thought, okay, I trust you. But then Jesus said, how can you be so concerned about people in India but not be that concerned about your neighbors? How can you be so concerned about people in India but never talk to anybody about your work who doesn't know Jesus? How can you cry tears for people in India who don't know me, Christian, but not talk to your family members who you aren't sure have given their life to Jesus yet? And it was like God said, you know, there's a little tension here that I see in you, Christian, a little hypocrisy in your, in your tension that you're so burdened for India, but at least some of you just come to the school and preach to those who show up, but you're not worried about anyone on the outside. And it's like, man, I got a wake-up call trying to figure out how to give God a wake-up call. And isn't that like what always happens in our life? And we see this John chapter 11 filled with so much tension, so much struggle, so much emotion, 
so much of God is good and where was he and he loves me and he forgot about me. And at the end of it, Jesus is like, listen, all of this, everything in your life is helping you put your belief further in me. Because my goal for you, according to John 17, verses 20 and 21, is that you may know me and you may be close to me. Because, man, if we can figure that out, the rest of it, while not always explainable, you just live by faith, not by sight. One day at a time, live by faith, not by sight. So what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with all this information that, that we have talked about today? As I read John chapter 11, as I studied John chapter 11, I, as I put our Bible study together today, I was like, all right, God, so like, what do you want me to tell the people to do? And here's what the three things I believe that God wants me to tell our church to do as a result of what we've learned in John chapter 11. Number one, these, we would call these next steps on the sermon notes you have. So these are actually written down for you. You just, I think, have to fill in a blank. What do we have to do? Your next steps spiritually? Man, if you're struggling with God, you've got to keep struggling, but learn to ask every spiritual question. Just do it with a heart of trust and hope. Do it with a backdrop of 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that you can ask the question, but you're only going to learn the answer through faith. It's not just going to show up one day. But man, if, if you have separated from God because you're afraid to confront Him on something, we see in Scripture the most spiritual men in Scripture, Abraham, Moses, and David, all argued with God Jacob, we learn, wrestled actually physically with God and wouldn't let go of him until God actually separated his hip, we think. So it's all right to go out in the woods and yell at God. You just got to be willing to listen to what he yells back. But ask every spiritual question. Live within the tension. Lean into the tension so you can grow spiritually. Secondly, man, everyone in here has to live with resurrection life in mind. Both our resurrection life, man, your soul was created to live forever somewhere. God wants you to live with him. He's extended you an offer to live with him. But he's extended with that offer a way of life called follow me where you begin to live in the pattern that Jesus set for us. So for you and for others, I, I've got our ushers who are going to come down the aisle because as we talk about the spiritual life of others, the resurrection life of others, you know there's no greater time in the world. Yeah, the hand out the uh, little postcards, guys. There's no greater time in the world ever to invite someone to church than Easter Sunday. So our ushers are going to go down the aisle and they're going to give you these little business cards. I want you to take three to five at the most, unless you'll pass out. If you'll pass out 100, take 100, but I, I don't know that we ordered a bunch. I only want you to give out two, by the way. So, but take three to five in case your first two get thrown back in your face or somebody takes it and tears it up. I, I want everyone to give out two. And as we focus on resurrection life, our resurrection life, others' resurrection life, here's, here's what I want you to be attentive to the next 14 days. Do you have anyone in their life who has not placed their faith for their resurrection life in Jesus? Do you have anyone in your life, and I've got two cards, one person in your family who may not be leaning into Jesus for their life and for their future and their eternity, and then one family, and then one friend or coworker that you just, you don't know if they know Jesus yet. Say, Christian, how are the people in India going to hear about Jesus? Someone's going to have to go tell them. How are the people in your school and in your work and in your subdivision and in your home going to hear about Jesus? Somebody's got to tell them. And they can say yes or no, but someone should at least give them the opportunity. Here's what I told the early service. I'm not asking you to lead someone to Jesus. I'm not asking you to force anything upon anyone. I'm not asking you to have a difficult conversation. Here's what I ask our early service to say. Go to a friend or family member that you don't know if they're engaged spiritually and say this. Hey, I don't know if you've decided where you're going to church on, yet on Easter Sunday, but I'd love you to come to my church with me and my family. Hand this, Put this in their hand and walk away. 
You don't need a discussion. You don't need to pray over them. You don't need to talk about heaven or hell. You just need to say, hey, I don't know if you've decided where you're going to church yet for Easter Sunday, but if you haven't, I'd love you to come to church with me and my family. Put this in their hand and then walk away. One family member, one friend. How do you change a life in India? You go and tell someone about Jesus. How do you do it in Lee Summit or Cass County or Independence or Overland Park or Olathe or Gardner? The exact same way you go tell them. So I'm asking everyone in our church to invite two people or two groups of people, a family and a friend, because resurrection life is real. And then thirdly, man, we've got to make Easter count. For some reason, the world is awake to spiritual things at Easter. It has to be something that only Jesus could have done when he arose from the grave. But people are aware of Easter things. I promise you, your kid does not have a sports activity on Easter Sunday. Probably your job will not ask you to work Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is kind of a day to celebrate Jesus. So let's do it with people who may not know Jesus yet. And man, if we will begin to wrestle with Jesus instead of run from him, if we will begin to live with resurrection life in mind, if we will make Easter count, you know what, 15 days from today, April 1st, April Fool's Day, we can sit back at our life and look and see that we've drawn closer to Jesus, see that we've brought others closer to Jesus, and all of a sudden we look and think, man, we're fulfilling the great commandment to love God with all our heart. We're fulfilling the great commission to go and tell others about Jesus. We're fulfilling that great compassion to care about people who might not have enough in their life. You find yourself, like Melanie said, ready to stand before God and for him to say, good job. You know, I don't know if God gives a thumbs up or a fist bump or a high five or whatever, but the words are well done. I see well done as kind of, you know, as a football player, we pat each other on the rear. I, I don't know that God will pat me on the rear one day, but whatever it is, I'm ready for God's fist bump, high five, hand slap, butt slap, whatever. I'm ready for God to say, good job, dude. You did your best. You are not perfect, but you did your best. Good job. Let's do our best the next two weeks. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, we're, at least I am very thankful for what I learned in John chapter 11 because I saw a scenario presented that I live in. I would like to be, Lord, a Christian who never doubts, who never wonders, who is always happy, who always believes that you have my best interest at heart and you'll always be there and you'll never fail. But I find myself often like Martha and Mary and their friends wondering why you didn't show up. And what that means. And why you didn't keep me from a situation that was hurtful to me. And what it all means when things don't fit together. I find myself a conflicted Christian often living in tension. And God, to be able to see people who are close to you living with that tension and pressing through it so that they might know you more, it gives me hope that I'm not a lost cause. And I'm not just immature, but I'm, I'm growing. And that growing process is sometimes painful. And God, I pray that you will help me as I grow to learn how to work out the soreness of spiritual growth so I can continue to pursue you. God, I pray for men and women in here today that uh, have felt like they're in a continual tug of war with you. Strengthen their arms to continue to hang on to the rope till they can see how their situation is going to be good in their life. Help them to realize they're only going to see it by faith, not sight. So they just need to quit trying to figure it out. Just keep living and pressing into you. And God, I pray for those who are here today and for those who are represented by people in this room today, friends and family members who have not yet stepped into resurrection life. 
Help them to realize they don't have to take off their grave clothes before they step into resurrection life. And they don't have to clean themselves up before they step into resurrection life. And they don't have to have a a perfect odor and a perfect life and a perfect track record. Lord, all the bad things, all the dead things about us, you call us while we're still dead spiritually. You call and say, follow me. And Lord, it's, it's our response to that that allows us to step into resurrection life. So for the men and women that will put a little business card in their hand, help them to come. And to just fall in love with Jesus on Easter Sunday and what they hear and see of him. And God, I pray for the people in the room today. Maybe there's a man or a woman or a teenager or a child here today that has been running from resurrection life because they want to live by sight and not faith. And they don't have it all figured out yet, so they're not going to step into it. Or maybe they're like Martha and they worry that their their past life is just kind of too disgusting to be presented to you. But today they've realized that you're calling and you love them and you want to personally know them. And today they're ready to step into resurrection life in a personal relationship with a God who wants to know and love us very personally. If that's you and you're here today, I want you to pray a prayer with me. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. And you, you don't even have to pray the prayer out loud. You can just pray it in your heart. But today, if it's if today, it's your will to step into resurrection life, to give your life to Jesus, to quit running to step into who Jesus is and what he has for you just as you are we'll worry about all this stuff later and I want you to pray this prayer from your heart and your soul step into resurrection life today dear God I need you in my life today and while I don't know what giving my life to you means for my future I know what it means for my eternity I want to go to heaven when I die And I know what it means for my heart right now, which is just simple obedience, that I will work to learn and understand how to follow you and do that to the best of my ability for the rest of my life. So today, God, I ask Jesus to be my master and my Lord. I step into the resurrection life that I've been called to. I ask you to save me and change me And give me eternal life when I die. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Please nobody looking around. If you just prayed that prayer today. Would you just raise your hand so that I can know. Just slip your hand up right now. Just wherever you're sitting. Hey Christian I prayed with you. And then you can put it right back down. God thanks for what you're doing in our church. And in the lives of our people. Continue to press into us. Make us useful for you and others. As we enter the Easter season. Let's see things in Jesus name today. And everyone said together. Amen. Here's what I want you to do.